What is the difference between fame and actual influence? When an industry starts to be valued in billions. This week on Download This Show, understanding the billion dollar influencer industry. When it works well, she could sell anything off Instagram. When it really doesn't. Her followers, she couldn't get her followers to do anything. People like looking at pictures of her, but they were not influenced by her. And whether Facebook and Instagram removing likes really is about giving you better mental health. No, it's about money. It's always about money. Plus, virtual clothes shopping and Apple launched their brand new news service. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show, and I welcome back to the show the editor of Junkie, Ray Johnson. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. At some point, I'm going to have to put like a cheer sound in here, like it's the beginning of a Woo! thank you, like a, the beginning of a sitcom of some kind, like when, <laughs> when somebody opens the door, people clap for no good reason. Yeah. Laugh track. A Ariel laugh track. Bogle, <laughs> technology reporter for the ABC. Woo! So thank much drama. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, right. So this week saw Apple roll out Apple News Plus, which is what? Uh, well, if you have an iPhone, you probably have an app already called Apple News, and that lets you access all kinds of news outlets for free. Essentially, what Apple News Plus is a subscription service that gives you an additional layer of access to content that normally you'd have to pay for. So here in Australia, News Corp was pretty much the major partner. So if you subscribe for $14.99 per month to Apple News Plus, you'll get access to titles like The Australian, Daily Telegraph, Vogue, stuff that's normally behind a paywall. Every time I read Vogue, in my mind, I still say Vogue because I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, is it it worth the money, Ray Johnson? Look, I think it depends if you're a regular reader of those titles. Including uh, yeah, the, the access to, you know, other publications. You've got Rolling Stone and Harper's Bazaar and all, all those sorts of things. International titles, Wall Street yeah, Journal. That we normally wouldn't be able to. If you're the kind of person that's heading out regularly and purchasing those, you know, in person, you might want to be looking at a digital option. But it, it's an interesting thing because there has been a slight uptake in people purchasing real world print magazines. But the reason that it's happening is it's more centred around it being a bit of an indulgence, mm. like a bit of a me time, a bit of self-care. It's beautiful. Away from a screen. But I can, I can only see this being a positive really for people who already read these magazines and for the publishers as well to be able to reach all of those you know, super dedicated Apple people that are just going to subscribe to literally everything. <laughs> Thank you. That's me. Uh, <laughs> I'm also sort of fascinated as to whether or not it solves what has sort of been a long-standing problem with news media in sort of the last decade, which is as you can access everything through a search engine or through social, there is an argument that it sort of diminishes your relationship with specific mastheads. Mm. Like people don't go back to specific mastheads. They wait for something to sort of pop up on on Facebook. The biz term is brand dilution. Oh, very nice. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Do you think this will help solve brand dilution? No, probably make it. it will probably make. But hey, we learned a new term. That's great. Worse. Yeah, so I think a lot of studies of how people consume news these days suggests that in a lot of cases, people no longer have the relationship with the title that's delivering the content, but more the platform that 
is delivering the content. So if you're someone that clicks on news articles in your Facebook feed, you more likely think of Facebook as the deliverer of that news and you have a relationship or an opinion of news based on what kind of news you see on Facebook and likewise with Apple News. So a lot of Australian publishers have really embraced Apple News, the free version, and you do get a lot of traffic from it. If Mm. they choose to support your story, to send an alert with your story, to put it at the top of the Apple News feed, it can have a remarkable impact on traffic actually. But It is another case of handing power from the news organisation and handing that relationship, that direct relationship with your reader, with your audience to a third party who starts to mediate it. And if the Apple News Plus app, you know, spreads fake news or gets some sort of bad reputation like Facebook does now in the news space, that could have impact on your brand too. Yeah, I think another thing that isn't really very clear is how much of a cut the publishers are getting. I was going to ask that. They're not really disclosing what the agreements are. And I know that there was some reports in the lead up to this being released in other markets that it was potentially up to 50% of revenue that Apple would be taking. But even then, 50% of something is better than 50% of nothing, you could say. Yeah, I guess if, it's, you're if they're people, new audiences. Exactly. If mm-hmm. it's a new audience and if it's the people that aren't going to you know, purchase a magazine so they can have a cuppa in the sun. This might seem like a silly idea, but I, part of me wonders if there's value in like bundling together publications based on like what you're interested in. Not, And this is a weird analogy given it's a sort of dying business, but not dissimilar to what cable channels used to do where... You could get kids entertainment, you get a sport package. Like, yeah. I could see value in that, particularly given the, I guess, the breadth of brands that Apple are likely to work with here. Do you think yeah, that would work? Definitely. And I don't think that people are really shying away from subscribing to news sources either. So I, I think it's a pretty easy bridge to cross for the publishers and for Apple in general. I know that I'd probably be more likely to sign up for a slightly lower cost bundle of the kind of content I'd want to consume rather than have to fork out the $15 a month, which doesn't sound much. No. Until it adds up, until right, it adds yeah. up with yeah. everything else that you're subscribing to. Like I might only want to access two or three of those titles. How much time do people really have to read magazines anymore? Can I have some of that time? These are all important questions that need answers. It will be interesting to see how people here receive the app because when it was launched in the United States earlier this year, the app itself got a lot of bad reviews. They said it was felt half-baked, I think Gizmodo put it. They said that although you do think of screens and you know, even iPads as a great way to consume magazines, for example, in a lot of cases it felt like you were sort of scrolling over a PDF and sort of like zooming in on a PDF mm. rather than having a really native digital experience. And likewise, there was some consternation that although you were now ostensibly subscribe to something like New York Magazine, you're only getting sort of a version of the print edition and not all the digital content that that outlet has on its news website. So there were some teething problems there and it'll be interesting to see if they've fixed that up in time for this Australia and UK rollout. And just to come back to the bundling idea, I think that's That is really interesting and I guess it depends on like the sheer volume of titles that sign up because, of course, while we've been talking about The Australian, The Daily Telegraph, Vogue, etc., all the nine properties are missing here. So your Sydney Morning Herald, your local titles, your local regional titles and it is interesting to see News Corp embrace 
Apple in this case because they have been just wailing on Facebook and Google for the way they're impacting um, news outlets. And I think um, one of the News Corp execs said when announcing this Apple partnership that they're proud to partner globally with a company that truly believes in the profundity of provenance and there should be a premium for premium journalism. Apple has acted positively, honourably and decisively to change the digital landscape. Was there a two for one deal on words starting with P there? (laughs) (laughs) Was it alliteration day in Holt Street? Well, let me just say an insane statement. Um, I think it's a, it's a lot to lay it on like that at the beginning of what is an experiment in whether Apple will be good to you because you've signed up with Apple. People are subscribing through Apple, the third party, to access your content. What happens when Apple tries to squeeze you on the revenue share? Like, I wonder what the contracts look like. I wouldn't be issuing a statement quite so glowing. The profundity of the providence of the profits will be... <laughs> Can I just be say that quite- again? The profundity of provenance. Oh, why? <laughs> They're not words anyone says out loud next to each other ever. While we're actually just one like very minor thing on the P thing, can we now have a moratorium on things that are brand plus? Oh, Disney tell Plus, me about Apple it. News Plus. I'm done. I'm out. Uh, uh, look, uh, really, let's call this for what it is. It's fancy newsstand. Yeah. Do you remember the newsstand yeah, exactly. back do, in the I day do. that you could not delete from your phone? You had to like hide it away in a folder. It's like a U2 album. It was <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And no one really wanted it and it kind of just sat there and died. Mm. And yeah, look, I'm a little bit sus on whether or not the actual content of these magazines is something that people are going to want to consume on a screen because when I'm picking up a magazine, it's to read some more long-form stuff, it's to you know, access articles that I aren't, you know, timely, newsworthy kind of things. Like the, the content that's produced for a magazine is very different to content that's produced for an online platform. So doing that kind of brain switch from reading one type of article to another... I'm not sure is going to really resonate with a lot of people. I don't know. That's just me having a bit of a guess. Download this show is what you're listening to. And you are also listening to the voices of Ray Johnson, the editor of Junkie and Ariel Bogle, who is a technology reporter whose work you can see across the ABC. How do you feel about standing in front of a wall and that wall showing you your body in different kinds of clothes, which you have not physically put on? It's just changing them for you. Would that help or hurt the shopping experience for you? Because the London College of Fashion is just one of the many organisations that have been experimenting with mixed reality, augmented reality ways of trying on clothes. And I've, every time I see one of these stories, there's a part of me that just goes, I feel like there's such an easy opportunity to lie to me about how my body looks in clothes. Yeah. Is that like, am I wrong for thinking that's the first thing that, that comes to mind? I don't think you're wrong at all. And look, these things pop up every now and again and they're always touted as being some amazing new way to buy clothes. They've been carrying on with this stuff since 2005. Mm. Levi's did this back in the day with the Connect, the Microsoft Connect. And there was like mirrors that you would reflect your body back but they'd like they yep. pick that they'd like superimpose other clothes on you. Right? Yeah. And I think it's ignoring one big major factor of clothes and that's it's how it feels on you as well. Like you know, is it digging in? Does the fabric feel nice? Is it scratchy? Does it actually sit on you the way that you're seeing in these images? And although they're trying to get it as close to reality as possible, there's always going to be a little bit of a divide. I think 
It's better than just straight up ordering clothes from an online store that you've never even put anywhere near even a 3D model of your own body. Mm. You get a slightly better idea, so there'd be less returns in that instance, but it's never going to replace the real thing. I enjoy the potluck experience of like, am I an M or an L in this brand? Or no, I'm an XL. Screw you, brand. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, people do buy things online without that experience. So is this creating perhaps a strata that exists between the physical experience and the Mark's ASOS potluck (laughs) exists somewhere in between, Ariel. Certainly it has that potential, although as Ray notes, I've seen so many versions of this and none have like really taken off or worked. For myself, I unfortunately do shop a lot prompted by Instagram stuff. It's a safe space to admit it. I've admitted it many times in the show. Yeah. If you're a CrossFit athlete that buys a hair product, there's a pretty good chance I'm just going to buy that thing. Because yeah. I assume that the hair product you're putting on will also introduce abs. I don't know why my brain works in this dumb way. It just does. Influences. Yes. Which is a bad way. I mean, I readily admit it's a bad way to be prompted to shop because, of course, I mean, just like shopping in a magazine, the person's body who I'm seeing the clothes on in no way resembles my own, most likely. So it is a sort of recipe for returns and that is something that has to be addressed I think the sheer volume of shipping the environmental impact of online shopping although I will notice a sidebar that I think last year Australia Post said that um, online e-commerce only took up 10% of total retail sales so it's a lot but it's not yet yeah. majority mm. the majority way people shop here in Australia. You know, even when you look at research into other kind of augmented reality apps that are out there, you know, Amazon's got them, IKEA's got them, the purchases made through those apps only account for 5%. So I'm not really imagining this being a, a new platform of the future that we're shopping from. Download this show is what you're listening to. And while we are talking about bad online shopping habits, like your, your guys' habits are fine. It's my habits that are bad. Um, <laughs> so many people do buy things online because of people like influencers. Now, get this. Digital influencing is forecast to be worth $18 billion Australian dollars as an industry by 2020. Uh, they now dominate advertising spends. The question is... How exactly does it work? And if you're a brand investing in that, are you actually getting the return on it? How do you measure when somebody is actually influential as distinct from famous? Well, Sarah Corkadale is the CEO and the founder of, and this is a phrase I've never expected to say out loud, an influencer intelligence and digital trends platform. She'll explain what it is in a second. It's called Cork, named after herself. But also interesting is that she's written a book. It's called Influence. Uh, it's out in October and it's all about demystifying exactly how influencers operate. Also the rise of the phenomenon and what kind of happens next with that business. And so a couple of months ago, I spoke to her and I started by asking her, how do you even go about forecasting something as fast moving as social media influencing? So we are a team of journalists and we curate influencers who are relevant and up and coming and doing interesting things onto our platform. We uh, look into their background and research them uh, journalistically and we provide journalistic insight on their background. So, you know, um, what they do, what they won't do, where they went to university, any controversies, things they do like, things they don't like. Are they vegan? Do they drink alcohol? all of the information that a brand needs before they make that first step. And we combine this with data about um, how engaged their audience is and how regularly they publish. And then we also map social media. So you can see how 
one influencer, say, who's creating fashion content is collaborating with another who's creating beauty. So you can start to actually get a sense of the landscape. I have no agenda attached to the influencer industry other than to provide the most accurate information. So my company doesn't make money from influencers. We're an intelligence company. And because of that, I really wanted to get to the bottom of why did this industry emerge? What are its problems? Why do they exist? And where is it going? How did you first get interested in the space? Okay, so I was a journalist for 12 years and one of my jobs was to put uh, a Condé Nast title called Tatler Mm -hmm. online. Now, Tatler in the UK is a magazine about really rich people and it it was really fun. Um, And basically my job was to put that magazine online and to grow the digital audience, we worked with influencers who were kind of like socialites and we made videos with them and I really saw how quickly that grew our social audiences. And then I did the same again at Huffington Post and then the same again at a global trend forecasting agency called WGSN. And then I worked with brands on, you know, their influencer marketing strategies and who they should work with and how they should work with them. And the more and more I worked in this area and the more I learned, I realized that there were a lot of people around me who'd been thrown in at the deep end. Mm. And actually understanding how to navigate the space was incredibly difficult. And, you know, there's no education. It's not like you can sign up for a course. You know, there's tons of jargon. There's a lot of opinions. But actually what people need is information. And I thought, I have that information. I'm going to share it. Mm. And that's how it started. What does it say about the wider advertising industry that influences have become such a sought after tool, I guess, in, in, in marketing? Well, I think, you know, 25% of people globally use ad blocking software. So even if you are a brand uh, paying for display adverts on websites, there is a chance that quarter of your customers do not see that advert. Um, Then I think as well, you know, print sales in the UK in particular are declining and have been for the past few years. Um, And I think you have to go where the people are and the people are on social media. But the fact is, you know, things like Facebook's algorithm change, which prioritised friends and family content over uh, brand and publisher content has made the industry even harder for... That's an interesting point. I hadn't really considered that that would actually play in favour of human influencers, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Influencers for brands are human conduits because getting in front of consumers using their own social channels has become much more difficult. And I think as well, you know, the rise of influencers and the fact that they've kind of shaped social media means that as consumers, we sort of expect a human lens now. A human lens on everything feels quite natural in a sense. Are there examples where there's been a real disconnect between the influencer in question and the brand and perhaps audience expectations. I guess what I'm asking you is, when can it go wrong? Oh, well, I mean, it goes wrong all the time. Often it's because the brand and the influencer, it's a very awkward partnership. So, for example, um, there's a YouTuber in the UK called Alfie Days mm-hmm. who started a YouTube channel called Pointless Blog. Yep. Vlog, sorry. And um, these days it's just called Alfie Days. That's the name of the YouTube channel. But basically, um, he was advertising Daniel Wellington watches and his followers were basically saying, we know that you own a Cartier bracelet. Hmm. Why would you wear a Daniel Wellington watch over that? It's asking your followers to suspend disbelief 
in a sense. And I think as well, when brand influencer partnership is unbelievable, it really highlights the um, reality that the audience's loyalty to the influencer allows them to make money. Mm. And the fact that actually it feels like a friendship, but it's a business arrangement for the influencer. But I think that the sort of really aggressive commercialization of Instagram that's been happening, I guess, since probably 2016, has really tested the influencer-follower relationship mm. because followers started looking at the influencer's content because they thought, you're like me, you're relatable, I feel like we have common ground, I enjoy your content, it makes me feel like I'm not alone, it makes me feel like I'm not the only one going through certain issues. And these days, you know... Influencers are leading these really kind of like almost celebrity style lives. Mm. And for a lot of their followers who think, well, you're constantly pushing product and I used to enjoy hearing about your stories in your life. It's a bit of a disappointment, I think. Mm. And then they took away the likes and it got really sad. And then they took away the likes. I mean, what's your take on that? What The narrative that was put up was like, it's mental health. It'll make you feel better if you're not constantly counting likes. But is that real, do you think? No, it's about money. It's always about money. But I don't understand how taking away likes increases money for Instagram. I don't understand that. Well, I think that if you think about the way things are right now with influencer marketing, it's a direct relationship between the brand and the influencer. And Instagram's in the middle and those two parties are using their technology, their platform, but they're not getting any money from it. Mm. I think that Instagram has to find a way to slow down the speed at which influencer marketing is moving so that they can figure out how do we get a piece of this? Because if you think about it right now, you know, the CEO of Estee Lauder said last week, 75% of their marketing budget now goes on influencer marketing. Now, that's 70. Like 75. 75? Yeah. Global or? Global. So in that situation, that's a huge amount of money that's not going to Instagram HQ. But all of the promotion or a lot of the promotion is happening on their platform. Mm. So you have to think to yourself if you're at Instagram, what do we do to get part of this money? And p- there is a cynical part of me that thinks taking away the likes slows down the process and gives them a chance to grab back some of their land. Can you give me an example of of the sort of metrics that are overvalued? We measure things in likes and listens and views, but are there examples you can point to where that metric or those metrics aren't enough that we should be looking to to deeper, more complex metrics to work out whether an influencer is really that influential? I think that we do have to think more carefully about whether or not a brand fits naturally into someone's existing story rather than just sort of the brand being sort of superimposed on top of the influencer's regular content. So, for example, when I was a consultant, I built two influencers' followings. One was an interior designer who had spent about 20 years in the industry. Her mother was a very famous interior designer and she had had columns in Wall Street Journal. She had been a Vogue columnist and she at that time had an interiors column in a UK magazine called House and Garden. Mm -hmm. When we started, she had 8,000 followers and I got that up to 40,000 followers in a year without any paid spend. It was all organic. The other influencer was a supermodel. She must have had about half a million followers at the time when I started working with her and we got them up to a million. She was on magazine covers, she was on billboards, you know, she was kind of like everywhere and she'd been a supermodel for a long time. So you would think the supermodel is the bigger influencer, right? Mm. 
her followers, she couldn't get her followers to do anything. She had several side projects and you would think logically by her cross-promoting those on her platforms that those projects would get a lot of attention from her audience. They wouldn't follow them on the social platforms, they wouldn't engage with them, they wouldn't download her apps. People liked looking at pictures of her, but they were not influenced by her. This is the difference between famous and influential. Exactly. Right. So she didn't have like authority within the she space. She had no authority, no... yeah. Right. Okay. Whereas the interior designer, she could sell anything off Instagram. And, you know, she did these workshops that cost between uh, four and six hundred pounds for the day. So not like a small spend. They would sell out on Instagram in like, you know, a morning. And it's because people really trusted her. They really believed in her. They thought, yes, I believe that she has the knowledge to guide me in this sense. Mm. And, you know, and it wasn't just digital influence. You know, you'd go out for lunch with her and women would come up and say, oh, I just read your column. It was a completely different relationship. Too often we look at these big numbers and we think, okay, well, that's brilliant. That must mean that this person is really, really good. But actually all it means is this person is more famous. The term itself, influencer problematic. It, yeah, well, it's sort of loved and loathed. Why do you think there are people that hate being called it? Because I think it confuses what they do. I also think it's it's, it's a noun, it's not a verb. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's not really a real word. It's sort of like a made-up term to describe this new media at elevator pitch speed, yeah. you know. I think as well because there's a lot of derision among the wider media towards them because of this title. You know, you think a lot of these people were previously called bloggers or YouTubers and they didn't get half the vitriol that they get now. And I think as well, they didn't choose this title themselves. It was attributed to them by advertising agencies. When an industry starts to be valued in billions, as the influencer industry has, then we have to start taking it seriously. We have to start examining it and looking at, you know, what these people are doing right and actually really analysing their flaws as well to say, to warn, um, I guess, people who are working in this area about, you know, the things that they need to look out for um, so that they can work with influencers in a really efficient way. We have used metrics that have been given to us by social platforms we haven't actually stopped to think, what do we want out of these platforms? Are we looking for a community? Are we looking for people asking questions and you know talking to each other on our social platforms? Or are we just looking for popularity? And popularity is likes. Mm. So, or are we looking for click through? You know, I think that brands have to stop and think, why am I using influencers? Is it popularity so that you achieve that kind of herd mentality where you see, you know, an influencer is holding a product, tons of people like it, so they're reassured. I've never seen this product before, but there's evidence that it's good. Mm. Or do you want more than that? Do you want click-through? Do you want conversion? Do you want other people to talk about your product? Yeah, do you just want to change the conversation? Yeah, Mm. and actually this is a really, really good opportunity for brands to stop and redetermine their ROI strategy when it comes to influencer marketing. Um, I think as well, something that I think um, brands in Australia should really think about, because it's something we've seen in the UK, um, that's this sort of clandestine activity right now of influencers saying, well, because we're worried, of course, that they're going to take away the likes in the UK, influencers are now saying, well, it's going to cost X amount for me to post content about your product, And then it's going to cost more money for me to answer comments about your product. 
Mm. So they're charging extra on top to answer the comments. If, if you want me to engage, that's going to cost you. Introducing like tears. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. So, and they're kind of saying, you know, the conversation starts with the content. The content is just part of the job. So if I was a brand right now, I'd be making sure that my influencer contracts included um, that answer and comments are part of the job. Um, <laughs> it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Sarah McCorkadale there. I said she was, her name was Corkadale before. It's McCorkadale. Uh, she is the CEO and the founder of Influencer Intelligence and Digital Trends Platform Cork. And her book Influence is out in October. Hey, Ariel Bogle, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Ray Johnson from Junkie, thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back. And with that, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Download This Show. <laughs>